Good on ya, eat my pagan ass listeners. This is Lucky Licious, and I'm feeling very Aust- I'm feeling Australian today. That's right, I've got my Barbie uh, heating up in the back. I'm gonna about to throw some shrimp on it. I don't know what else is. Uh, let's see, yellowtail wine. That's I'm trying to think of everything I know about Australia. It's really not much. Maybe opera from the opera house and uh, oh, kangaroos. Yes, kangaroos. So, um, if you know of any other Australian things, now's the time to imagine them and see yourself there in the outback and, you know, walking, doing a walkabout with the uh, Aborigines, you know, and, I don't know, weaving dream time and all that fun stuff. I've never been to Australia, but I've succeeded in magically bringing Australia to me. Now, of course, there was a lot of help and a lot of other people did it, but... I reached out to Australia, and Australia answered, boys and girls, in the form of a beautiful young pagan named Gade Parma, who is my very special guest on this episode of Eat My Pagan Ass. This uh, interview that I'm about to present to you features the very talented young author, as I said, G'day, who is going to talk about some of his history. Um, he's an author, so he's got some books out there, including one that was just published called uh, Ecstatic Witchcraft, Magic, Philosophy, and Trance in the Shamanic Craft. He's here in the United States doing a book tour right now, um, and that's how I happened to grab him, because he just stopped off in New York City, and, and I said, hey, you're cute. Uh, let me interview you. That's really how it started, but it's since turned into this, you know, amazing uh, experience. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this interview with him, as I know you are, and you will. And um, he's got such a cute. I'm, I'm just a sucker for accents, honestly. Um, I, yeah. I mean, if you're Scottish or anything, like just from anywhere, I'm just gonna want to talk to you, pretty much. So anyway, so good day. Spend some time, and we talked about that. We talked about um, how he got involved in the craft. We talked about his work in exploring the role of young people in in today's modern craft. Um, we explore some of his um, Balinese and Hindu roots and the influence that that has had on his paganism. We talk about what he's up to these days. Um, and how he's kind of brought together a nice mix of different traditions and uh, found a path that not only works for him, but seems to inspire a lot of other people, especially a lot of young people. But um, this is not just for young people. This is for, for ancient, ancient, ancient. If, if you're a crone, listen up. This, this kid's got, this kid, this guy has got, I call him a kid. He's, he's just what, what is that? Let me, can I do the math? I guess he's 16 years younger than I am, so that, that kind of makes him a, a young man, a young man in my book. I'm getting old in my dotage, aren't I? But that's all right. We like that. As they said, you know, magic just, we, those of us in the, in the realm of magic who work with these energies age a lot better than the muggles, so, you know, there's some beauty secrets to be had. Anyway, I digress. Why? Because that's what we do in Australia. The entire continent of Australia is a digression, but I'm not going to go into that right now because <laughs> I don't know what that means, and I'm just talking out of my cornhole, um, <clears throat> trying to think of other Australian metaphors and doing a very bad job at it. So why don't I just shut up, and I'm sure there's a fun way that they say shut up in Australia, and I just don't know it, 
And let's get on with the podcast. Why, why should I prattle endlessly? I'm, I'm denying you the juice and the fruit and the, and the wisdom uh, that gets distilled through this being called Gede Parma. Um, before I before I do, haha, haha, you thought you were going to get good day right now, but I just want to also add that um, I had the pleasure of, um, after the podcast interview, uh, a couple days later, oh, and I apologize, I'm doing this on my iPhone, I couldn't find my MP3 recorder, I recorded the entire interview with good day on my iPhone, and so the sound quality is not optimal, but I think it will still get the job done. So I ask your forgiveness, and if you hear some plosives in there, some P's and B's hitting the microphone, um, or things aren't loud enough, just please forgive me, bear with me. Um, it's Mercury retrograde, and it just... I, that's all I'm going to say about that. But anyway, um, after the interview, I had a chance to hang out with G'day and some of his New York buddies uh, here, and uh, we had a wonderful, wonderful evening that went from... Um, hanging out, uh, well, from hanging out at the Namaste Bookshop, where G'day was um, doing a book signing and also giving a little mini-talk on um, various topics that were raised by those in attendance, which I had the pleasure of listening in on, um, to going and uh, to, I guess it was a wine bar, I, I don't really know what it was, but they served uh, wine and cheese and and food and all that stuff, and uh, a couple friends, uh, Lon Milo Duquette and Margot Adler, joined us as well as Courtney Weber of the Novices of the Old Ways Coven. Um, and it turns out it was all part of a plot of Gaudet's to get me involved or, or at least connected with this group of people. And I'm very grateful to him for having done that um, because they are a truly awesome gang of folks. And I look forward to seeing more of them um, in the, in, like soon, immediately this Saturday, actually. But the, um, the last thing I'll say is we, we just had a wonderful night. Um, uh, some of us after that went on to go dancing at Stonewall, which is an historic site. It's, it's the, the kind of the birthplace of the, uh, gay liberation movement as we know it today. Um, there were other efforts to liberate gay people before within the system, but it was at Stonewall that the, um, the drag queens and the, you know, just people who were not part of the system, um, kind of, so it's the outside in. And I actually have an interview with a, with a brilliant guy named Rich Wandell that I did um, about a month ago, and I haven't yet published it, but that's coming up next, and you're, he's going to talk a bit about the history of um, gay liberation and uh, also kind of the connection that that has to gay people and, um, well, of course gay liberation is connected to gay people. I mean to say connection to witchcraft and magic. Um, <clears throat> so, anyway, wonderful night of dancing. I'm still feeling all the great energy that we raised in that Stonewall bar upstairs. Once we got past the drag queen gatekeeper who read each and every one of us up and down in a very playful way, it was fine. Got upstairs, took our shirts off and just danced like satyrs until, you know, almost until the sunrise. Not quite, but for a, a Monday night on a work night, a school night as they say, uh, that was a little bit out of character for me, but I was having just such a wonderful time. I didn't want to let the magic end. And I'm also just coming off a lovely two weeks of vacation where I did dance pretty much every night, all night. And uh, I guess I'm just kind of in that mode and I really like that. And the last thing I will say, lest I drive you insane with the tantalizations of uh, knowing that you're about to listen to G'day, is um, <clears throat> it's almost my birthday. You'd all know by now, if you've listened to any, if you've listened to even five minutes of any episode, I refer to myself repeatedly 
as a Leo. And uh, so you know that I'm a Leo. So that means my birthday's coming up. And actually, G'day is also a Leo, as were several of the uh, beautiful young men who were gathered with us Monday night. So that was kind of fun. It's kind of like a yay, Leo's coming. And um, anyway, so my birthday's coming up. So uh, that's always an exciting time. A solar return is always a, a wonderful time. And I'm going through a nice period of introspection and I have a I have an initiation coming up into it into the tradition that I've been working with um, so that's happening and so just like things are, are shifting for me and that's a really wonder wonderful thing and um, I look forward to seeing where that goes where that takes me and sharing some of that adventure with you all so anyway um, it's it's good to be back I'm glad to get this podcast out I wanted to get it out while Gaday was still in the States touring so if you have an opportunity to see him please look him up I'll just give his website now it's G E D E P A R M A uh, dot com and um, you can see what he's up to so get out to see him if you can if you can't see him definitely check out his books um, you can get them pretty much anywhere um, they I know the last one's published by Llewellyn so you can probably just get it on Amazon. Um, <laughs> that's my cat. He's being really crazy. Um, and uh, that's it. So enjoy the enjoy the interview with this lovely, lovely, magical person. Bye, hookers. <laughs> Hey everyone, this is Lucky Licious, and you're listening to Eat My Pagan Ass, a pagan podcast. And I'm here today with a very special guest, all the way from Down Under. His name is G'day Parma. He's giggling. Um, he's in New York, and I happen to have the wonderful opportunity to grab him and bring him into my lair and uh, take him to the mat here to ask him some really hard-cutting questions about his spiritual path and um, just everything he's doing and, and what uh, and the trouble he's causing here in our beautiful city. So um, with, with that, I would just like to say welcome, G'day. Hello. Hello. Well, welcome to the United States. Why don't we start with um, just what brings you here? What, what brings you from Australia to the States? Um, well, I'm here because Llewellyn just released my new book, Ecstatic Witchcraft, in June. And I'm touring for seven weeks, um, promoting that book and all its associated teachings of ecstatic embodiment and um, you know, um, traditional witchcraft and potency, sorcery, all of that good stuff. And yeah, that's why I'm here. Mm-hmm. Um, where where are you touring? I was in the Bay Area for three and a half weeks. Well, no, that's a lie. I was in California for three and a half weeks. I was in San Diego, LA, and then the Bay Area. And now I'm here in New York City, and then I go to New Jersey and teach near Philly as well. And then I go to New Hampshire and teach for a little bit, and then Chicago, Minneapolis, and then Portland, Oregon. So you've, you've written uh, several books, actually, um, and I just, just looking at the website, um, there's one called By Land, Sky, and Sea, Three Realms of 
shamans? Shamanic witchcraft. Shamanic witchcraft. I can't read my own handwriting. <laughs> um, crafting the community, um, spirited, uh, taking paganism beyond the circle, and then, of course, your latest book, Ecstatic Witchcraft. So um, I guess the first one is by land and sea. Is that is no, the order spirited. right? Spirited. Spirited. Mm. And... Um, you had some things on your website about like the pagan youth are here. So can you talk a little bit about that book and what inspired you to write it? And how, how does, how does a person just get up and, and start writing a book? Why? I had a lot of angst. I was um, 16 when I started writing that book and I was so tired and exhausted of walking into bookstores, whether they were like, I don't know, like a, a Barnes and Noble or Borders type of bookstore or um, an occult bookstore. And I would keep on finding the same prepackaged drivel um, for anyone, let alone young people. And I was so tired of young people being treated as either a novelty in the craft, as if they weren't going to continue and endure with the mysteries um, or their own personalized spirituality, or they were talked down to. And young people these days, especially, um, are very intelligent and they're, they're exposed, we're exposed, they're exposed to a lot, um, constant information bombardment all of the time. So, you know, with this kind of post-information age and um, in, into the future, we are growing up faster in many ways in a, in a kind of a cerebral context and also having, and having a lot more um, kind of identity crises like th and because things are out in the open like sexuality gender identity and like spiritual choice like other than abrahamic tradition in the west that is so i wrote a book about identity basically so the book is in two parts identity being young pagan and identifying as young and pagan and then the second part is actually for anyone and everyone and most of the most of the people who've read that part are above the age of like 30 and they've gotten back to me and said, that's amazing that someone like you wrote, um, which I find annoying sometimes, but whatever. Um, they're just hitting on you. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, you know, wrote this book that is philosophical and cosmological and beyond the one Oh one, even though you wrote it for young people. And I'm like, well, we're serious too. Right. <laughs> so um, Spirited was kind of a, at first, like a punch in the face to a lot of the older pagans who were treating me like a fluffy bunny because I was young um, and interested in the craft and practicing the craft. And um, so, yeah, and then I got over it. But here, I, got, I was healed. You were introduced to the craft through uh, Charmed, well, the television yeah. show. I was introduced to witchcraft through Charmed. Because I was raised with um, Hindu mysticism and, and a form of shamanic um, tradition through my grandparents and my father, but um, I would like my mother is um, of Irish Scottish descent, and like everyone knows the word witch if you're in the West. I, I didn't know it when I was younger because I spoke Indonesian, but um, we had words. We have words for witches. Um, my what are they? Um, well, there's like Tukang Sahir, which just means magic person. And in Bali, there's a there's a type of traditional medicine. I see medicine in the Native American sense. Medicine person called Balian, which is like their witch doctor, um, quote unquote. Um, but there are Lyaks as well, which are kind of a vampiric type of um, black sorcerer. Um, which is how the missionary, the, like the Western missionaries, translated the word witch, though. So the word witch was immediately conflated with lyak. So when my, for instance, when my sister told my father that I was a witch, he kind of 
went psycho and then threw holy water at me. Um, did she use that word? She used the word witch. Yeah. Oh, but not Lyak. No, but he immediately identified it with Lyak. Right. Yeah, because that's how it was presented to him by the Western missionaries yeah. who had come through. Yeah, so that was awkward. Well, Charmed is a great show, and I love it, and I love the the opening um, soundtrack, the, the, the theme song. So, um, But like, like many things, I, I understand that whatever brings you to this path, I don't even remember really what brought me mm. to this path. It was just... Honestly, I don't remember. I remember the first book on witchcraft I read, but I don't remember why. Yeah. But whatever. Yeah, for sure. Whatever gets you here. I think so. And for me, Charmed was like, it was in like the late 90s that it first came out. And I had already been um, kind of attracted to magic and mysticism in the like the Western European context for a little bit before that. Um, like I was 10 though, and I was, I guess I was just a precocious child reading a lot of books. Um, and I'd always grown up with ceremony, mantras, meditation, trance, spirit possession, and magic, but I never even kind of thought that it was different from anyone else's context. So I had this context, or a pretext, and then I kind of launched out from it um, because I was drawn to the European traditions. And these days it's much more of a syncretized uh, alchemy. So you expressed your teen angst and you made yourself heard and you made the collective pagan youth voice heard. And then what was next? Uh, Crafting the Community? Was that the next book? Mm. That's a book I don't really, um, I unfortunately don't think about, about much because it wasn't published big scale by Llewellyn or anything. It was just by a little Australian publisher. Um, and I just wanted to collect a bunch of Australian pagan stories and put it in an anthology. So I didn't write it. I just edited it and compiled it. And it's just a bunch of um, pagan activists and elders in Australia because that had never been done. Um, are these pagans that are influenced by Western paganism or are these uh, Aboriginal or... No, they're all Western pagans, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so European kind of diasporic. Mm-hmm. It sounds interesting. It was very interesting. And I think I should go back to it and like kind of republish it in a way. I'm actually yeah. working on at the moment... I've compiled, I think I've got 14 already, but 14 essays by um, young pagan activists and uh, kind of movers and shakers from all around the world that I'm compiling into a new anthology, which I think a lot of people will find very interesting. Hmm. Cool. And then then the next was By Land, Sky, and Sea. Mm. And what is that book about? That is about um, sh- um, developing confidence in shamanic skill sets that relate to traditional witchcraft. So... It's, I use the Celtic aesthetic of land, sky, and sea because that's specific to my tradition or one of them, but um, really it's the, um, the middle world, the underworld, and the upper world, and the world tree that holds them all, and how to move between those worlds, how to understand our relationship with each one, and, how to, and I kind of grouped certain skills like spirit flight, visionary sight, um, shape-shifting, energetic web weaving into the different realms mm-hmm. so that people could kind of create an alignment to each realm and gain a confidence in the skills related to those realms. What are, what are, what's like the biggest challenge that you find most people face in developing uh, proficiency in any of those abilities? Lack of context, lack of awareness that our bodies are made for it. Um, Most people think it's supernatural and nothing about witchcraft is supernatural. Um, And that we uh, kind of, a belief that it's it's an outer thing, not an inner alchemy, that it's kind of projected onto really kind of magnificent people and is it something we can't all magnify within ourselves. 
Um, and I think the thing, the biggest thing is lack of trust in self and lack of trust in the experience to guide you. And yes, it is dangerous. So there is that as well. Like, well, like crossing the road is dangerous. This in the same way is dangerous. But a lot of people, I think, kind of um, magnify the danger of um, quote unquote spiritual work for some reason, because I don't know why we have a lot of kind of stigma related to witchcraft in general still in our Western psyche. And I think anything that makes the craft real, like spirit flight and visionary trance and possession and spirit working with spirits frightens people. I find a lot of witchcraft to be much, to, to be abstract and cerebral and metaphoric. And my witchcraft is none of those things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the quote, nothing about witchcraft is supernatural. Um, and I, I, I would love that to be the first thing people learn about this when they come into the craft, because what I found here in the States anyway, and perhaps this is true elsewhere, that you, when you get people who are coming in around 16, 17, maybe even earlier, and this might explain why there is a, a bias on the part of older pagans about the seriousness of the, of the, the younger pagan, is um, you tend to attr- attract people who are finding or seeking a way of escape Mm. While I mean, at the same time, I don't want to completely generalize. Obviously, there's there are people who are looking for deeper meaning and truth and um, relevance, as well as developing personal power. Mm. But some people do it in a way that's just you, you kind of shake your head and go, "Really, mm. really, you really believe all of that? You know, and how is that really helping you, or how are you really helping other people?" You know, just it's it just seems like a, a magical masturbation that that folks seem to be doing. But on the other hand, whatever I guess to, to each yeah. his or her own. Yeah, like re- reality is infinite, and there are I've seen some things that people would never believe. Um, but I th- I think the escapism thing I've seen in any demographic, like really regardless of age, I've seen it. I've done in my workshops and teaching. I've met a lot of people of many age brackets and many kind of socioeconomic distinctions who are escapists um who are who i would say are deluding themselves with fantasies but it's not so much of what they're putting belief into it's more so how they do it it's because again i've seen a lot of stuff and i've experienced a lot of stuff which most people would kind of don't don't have a context for at all and in like and in my work which is shamanic witchcraft or what i'm calling that these days most indigenous groups of people in the world still talk about things like physical shape-shifting and um, physical flight and things that... Because there's no distinction between the flesh and the spirit, which is how I come at it. There is no dichotomy. And I have seen things that don't prove... It. I don't like that word. I think, I think it's self-evidential. Like when you go into indigenous communities, the way people speak and the way people speak and conceptualize their experiences really does alter how our consciousness perceives the experience. Mm-hmm. So magic is a deep well. to the other side 
let's talk about your latest book, uh, Ecstatic Witchcraft, Magic Philosophy and what? Trance in, <laughs> in the shamanic craft. Yeah. Um, what is Ecstatic Witchcraft? It is synonymous with shamanic witchcraft. Um, the publisher just decided to call it that. And I went, yes, that is exactly it. Like I talk about ecstatic witchcraft all the time, but I just didn't click that I should call it that or that we should call it that. And, um, and it's, a, it's, it's, it's not even a form of witchcraft. It's not a tradition of witchcraft. It is an attempt and, a, and, and an embodied uh, experiential spirituality that seeks to resurrect and reconsecrate all of the kind of timeless um, material of witchcraft as it was and as it is and as it is becoming. So it's, it's a witch... Ecstasy comes from two Greek, two Greek words, which is ek and stasis, to stand outside of self, and that is always qualified by to stand outside of self as limited to I am only this. So any technology or methodology or philosophy that allows us to transcend um, the, the barrier that separates I from all is an ecstatic um, technique. Um, and, and Mercia Eliard, one of the late Romanian anthropologists who did a lot of field work with um, Siberian shamanism, he said that shamanism was and is a technique of ecstasy and ecstatic technique, which allows us to, again, identify this self here with the all self that is the infinity of the cosmos, creates a direct potency which when we work and sit in that place allows us to be equal to the spirits or rather realize that we are equal to the spirits and the gods, which is why witches and shamans and mystics have always been feared by their communities, feared and revered, because we have dared to potentize our own spiritual um, numinous quality and become the living gods that we are. So to to an unschooled Western ear, shamanism is a word that carries with it cultural baggage, mm-hmm. um, and there are some images you know of uh, that we that that come to mind. And so far, I've heard you speak more universally that you're talking about kind of core concepts that transcend culture itself, not just the ego, but the culture itself. And I just wanted to verify, like, is shamanism, is there a place for shamanism or ecstatic witchcraft in, in a Western society? Yes. And, and that's part one. And part two is um, how, how does it respond to, there, there are people who will say, um, you know, shamanism should be left to the indigenous cultures and any attempt on the part of Westerners to adapt or adopt um, is cultural theft and appropriation. So how do you respond to that? I find that all very interesting because the word shaman comes from one single tribe in northwestern Siberia, and yet in postmodern academia we're willing to describe all indigenous communities as shamanic when that word means nothing to South Americans, it means nothing to Native Americans, it means nothing to Southeast Asians. They've never heard that word, and we put it on them. Like the white West puts it on them. And I come from a South, I'm half Balinese, so it's, I find it very odd that we use that word. And I'm, I'm like in my new book, I talk about this, like how it's a postmodern academic word that is now actually common vernacular in the West to describe certain kinds of practices which are ecstatic because that's how it was first postulated by our academia in the West. Interestingly enough, we have shamanic, ecstatic um, Western European um, past and still existing uh, spirituality and methodology. And yet we, for some reason, and I think it's kind of subconscious racism, are unwilling to say that in the West we have shamanism because that would make us primitive or backward. And yet it doesn't. 
it just connects us to our primal heritage. I think in the West we are so dispossessed of our, of our um, authentic uh, ecstatic cultures and we've become too cerebralized and too dichotomized. Again, this divide between the spirit and the flesh. And my work, how I see my work is to help a little bit to reconcile that. Let's talk more then about your background and how that's contributed to um, the spiritual path that you're on today. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you're half Balinese, and then you said earlier that your mother was Irish, mm-hmm. right? So, um, so here you have East and West yeah. embodied. Um, how has that been influential to you? It certainly sounds like it's helped you to see things from a different perspective, mm-hmm. from multiple perspectives. Um, anything else? You know what? When I first embraced witchcraft when I was 11, because, it, because it's, even when I was 11, I had this understanding that it was European, that the way witchcraft was being presented to me as, at first as Wicca, and I'm not Wiccan anymore, or I don't think I ever was, um, it was very European. And um, I actually rejected all of my Hinduism immediately. I just rejected it. And it really, I can see now that was very naive, but I did it. And the, in the past few years, I have gone back to it but not, I don't identify as Hindu, I identify as pagan, like my religiosity is pagan, but I'm syncretic. And we live in a world where at the drop of a hat, I could have a vision of a black goddess with flouncy azure skirts shining in the belly of the ocean. I could enter most of those keywords into Google and it would come up with Yamayar. In 2000 years ago, if I was living in Ireland, I would never have understood that vision. I could have just as much have had that vision, but I would never have had a reference for it because I couldn't go onto this net web and go la 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 and my druids or my local elders wouldn't have been able to say anything. They would have tried to find the nearest spirit. Like, or they might have gone, we have no idea who that is. You know, that's just a far out demon. So, like, the way we are now in this kind of multicultural melting pot... Um, we can identify um, with any inspirational stream while also being super conscious and sensitive to cultural misappropriation and to not wholesale pretend or teach a tradition that isn't yours to teach. Um, So that's how I've been, like, that's how I I identify as syncretic rather than eclectic, although I acknowledge that I have to have an eclectic kind of framework, or rather, no, I have to have an eclectic opportunity to draw all these threads in that I have been originally inspired by, and then to create a wholeness that reflects my unfolding spiritual gnosis, and that I should be able to at any time revisit that and change it, because I change every day. So recently, I've changed, and I've started to open to a lot of Hindu mysticism again, and I'm also also studying, two years into studying the fairy tradition, Anderson fairy tradition, with a teacher in the Bay Area, and it's been really, um, inf- it has begun to really inform a lot of what I was doing previously. So a lot of my understandings have shifted. A lot of folks, well, I don't know a lot, but in my small circle of gay pagans anyway, um, there's a lot of interest in Anderson Ferry tradition. And I had my first exposure to it at the Between the Worlds Festival last autumn. And uh, it is very interesting and um, direct. I really like that. Um, and now I'm, uh, so that's like on the back burner. I think one of the, one of the hardest things we as pagans have today is the, the amount of choice because we have the internet and because we are exposed to so much information. 
how do we find a path that's really going to work for us and be meaningful for us? And um, for me, it's been a, a process of trial and error. And even the errors are never egregious. They're almost always learning opportunities. Mm. And you kind of pick things up as you go along. It sounds like you've had a similar experience um, where you, you go through things, you 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 pull what, what's good from it, and you synthesize it into a, a broader tapestry of your, mm. you know, which is, I think, more reflective of just our our being, our spiritual being, and, and us in a modern society. I'm involved in a tradition that's kind of multicultural as well. It's, it's a fair, F-A-E, R-A-E, it's a fairy tradition, um, which, is, uh, which means a lot of things to a lot of people, but to us it just it means mostly working with the intelligences of nature um, and um, also working with the fairy, the fairy beings of Welsh, mostly Welsh tradition. So I, I have a teacher who is half Welsh and half Japanese. So she also brings in like this Shinto um, yeah, and uh, ancestor work. Um, and then at the same time, because of that, she's also stressed um, a need for us here in the U.S. especially, but I, I imagine this would apply to anyone, to, to also connect to the, the spirits of the land that are, that are here yes. and the, especially like the vibrations of the people who were here before us mm-hmm. and the, you know, the channels that they helped set up that are still, you know, here and, mm-hmm. and, and are accessible to us, mm-hmm. but not through cultural appropriation mm-hmm. or misappropriation, but through Respect. respectful in, investigation, mm-hmm. right? Regrets collect like old friends Here to relive your darkest moments I can see no way, I can see no way And all of the ghouls come out to play And every demon wants his pound of flesh But I'd like to keep some things to myself I'd like to keep my 
What is the Wildwood tradition? Mm-hmm. It is my hot home. It is my religion. I, I really dislike the word religion, but um, I've come to understand that for me, religion is the external expression of a spiritual impulse, but qualified by community. So relig- that is my religion. It's like how Thorn Coyle always says that fairy is her religion. Wildwood is my religion. And um, Wildwood is very parallel to fairy. In fact, it keeps smacking me in the face in my studies of fairy how much it is. And whenever I talk to another fairy person or a fairy initiate, they're struck by the immediate parallels. And not even just like core concepts that flow through everything and we can kind of go, oh, you know, that's common to this and that's common to that. But very, very striking things. Um, the Wildwood tradition is, is an emergent tradition. It emerged without us really wanting it to, but now we willfully engage with it. It's something that I kind of helped to co-found a coven in early 2006, um, so six years ago, and it has become something that is now present in several groups in both hemispheres. We now have long-distance students in both hemispheres, and we now have um, people who don't work in the coven systems at all but um, work, teach, like learn in person and then stay as we don't call them solitaries because we are a shamanic ecstatic tradition and willfully engage with those concepts. Um, so we, we don't believe anyone can be solitary because we're always sharing community with the cosmos and with all the beings that per, um, kind of people the cosmos. So we're wanderers or we're coven witches, but ideally every coven witch is a wanderer. The wild, if I had to like kind of bring it down, the wildwood tradition is a contemporary form of witchcraft which is inspired by the perfect poetry of the sacred four, the weaver, the green man, the crescent crown goddess, and the horned cloaked god, and works with shamanic skill sets such as transpossession, mediumship, oracular seership, shape-shifting, and also celebratory ritual which engages every sense and is participatory to create a feeling of intimacy with the wild that exists in all things. But what's it really all about? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, fuck you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, that is what it's about. Like, like I, um, like what, what, like what's a, a really good example? Like the other day, the other night, in fact, we spiraled up this gigantic hill in the middle of Golden Cape Park, in the middle of Stow Lake, and on the top was this kind of rocky amphitheater and the way I guess uh, if I describe this ritual this is this is a really good way of touching the wildwood so what we do is we um we don't just ground and center like a lot of pagan groups do like roots in and branches up and all of that we we um align the three souls which is also a fairy concept um kind of talking soul shadow soul and star soul as I call them um with the three realms Um, land, sky, and sea, and we become literally the world tree that holds the totality of all things, and in so doing, we anchor place in space. We believe that there are kind of two main um, qualities to God herself, or the weaver, as we call her, um, which which is space and time, um, or time and necessity, and that the true name of need is desire. So all creativity is is desirous and it desires itself endlessly, which is why everything is differentiated so that we can meet, know, remember and touch. And God herself can be whole constantly, deepening her wholeness. And our work is to become conscious of that deepening of wholeness and understand that we are part of that agency as well and that it is a very conscious thing and it's very sensual. So all Wildwood witches are hugely sensual creatures, actively so. 
And so, you know, then we always, what you mentioned before about the spirits of place and the land, that is the first thing we do, every Wildwood witch. The first thing we do after we align and purify and cleanse, we touch the land and we honour the ancestors of the land. And then we talk to the spirits of place who are other than human. So it's not just the, um, the human ancestors of the land, it's all the rocks and the stardust and the trees and the animals that have always been there layer after layer after layer. And then sometimes we acknowledge all the peoples who came. Like today when we were doing a wildwood ceremony, we acknowledged all the different cultures who came to inform the current Manhattan. And um, we named some of them the ones that came to mind like that, and then we felt them all rush in, all these many bloodlines and lineages. And when we cast a circle, if we cast a circle in the wildwood, we don't do it to block ourselves off, because that makes no sense. Like, sometimes I, I notice in some pagan traditions that the, the ritual is absolutely not informed by what people suggest their philosophy is. It's like, if you truly believe that all is sacred, why are you even using language to say that you are creating sacred space? You didn't, I can't even say that. I haven't been able to say that for five years. I always say I affirm sacred space because I don't see the difference between what people call profane and what people call sacred. To the profane, all is profane. To the sacred, all is sacred. And it's just, so when we cast a circle, we enjoin ourselves to the infinite. We're not we're not separating the mundane from the sacred or the magical. Everything is magical. Everything is mundane all at the same time. And so we anchor place in space and we let the great spiral of time draw into our being so that when we cast the circle, we are drawing attention to our here and now and the whole of the living limitless cosmos is now desirous of us, which is what makes truly the circle casting such a potent thing. And then we honor the elements of life and we also have guardians that um, are honored at the elements too, the horned owl with air, the king stag with water, the cunning fox with fire and the mother bear and cub with earth. And depending on where we are, um, different native spirits will come at that time too. And then we honor the first witch who we call Ara. And there's a very kind of, like people who are familiar with Stregaria or Italian witchcraft will know that's Aradia. Aradia in Latin means altar of the goddess. Ara just means altar. So all wildwood witches, especially those who have been initiated into the wildwood, um, though we don't have degrees, we, um, there's only one initiation, we make vows so that our lives become altars to the goddess. Um, and so that she can celebrate her, her dynamic spirit as me in her as me. But what is it really all about? I'm kidding, of course. <laughs> that was wonderful. That was wonderfully articulate, of course, which is obviously one of your uh, strengths. Um, and what you said resonated, or if not directly echoed thoughts and feelings that I've had or shared with other people in terms of how we work. And so um, you're definitely tapped into, um, especially the, the idea of, you know, all of the goddess... Uh, differentiating and, and, and con touching itself and learning from itself. That was something that I figured out actually a long time ago on an acid trip, unfortunately. <laughs> an ecstatic experience that I had um, during college yeah. involving LSD, um, which I'd never forgotten, which still um, stays with me and does under... It, it, it affects not only how I relate to nature or animals, but also to other people. It gives me a lot of yeah. patience with people um, that I didn't have before, so... And insight. And insight, yeah. And on that note, well, uh, about uh, taking direct action on, on the world itself. So uh, earlier we were talking and you mentioned that there's, there's a lot of activism um, in your 
approach to spirituality. And I wanted to talk more about that because I'm very fascinated by that. And I, and I know that there's so much in this world that needs to be done. And I think one thing that, that pagans are deeply attuned to is the pain of the earth and the pain of, of life that's here. Um, and the impact that we are having, um, on, on this planet, you know, just shitting on our own home and, you know, whatever. Um, so just wondered, like, what are some ways that you apply, you know, how do you apply to the, to the real world? Or maybe not you, because you're applying by, by writing and teaching and instructing, but how can others apply their inner world to the outer? Yeah, um, again, I, I don't see the dichotomy between inner and outer, so it's almost like it, sh- it should, and I really don't like that word, should be implied that we're active. Like, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, armchair theorists or occultists or witches or magicians or pagans who read a lot and they'll never do a thing. I actually think our ritual and ceremony, which is very part of our human communities, should engage directly with um, activist work, being actively engaged with the living embodiment of the divine, which is, for us, this home planet of Earth our biosphere of earth. So I don't see how um, kind of like recycling, composting, eating, trying to eat local, organic, uh, trying to minimize the harm of everything we eat, plant or animal, um, like doing doing work with other human communities, people who are living in poverty, people who are like social, you know, have social stigma and are marginalized and how to heal and reconcile that. Um, Whatever, whatever we're drawn to at the time, right? Because we can't, we can't, we're not superheroes and we can't just, we shouldn't be martyrs. So I think that's a dangerous road to go down, to kind of burn yourself out on and to maybe believe that for some reason I have the cure. Really, it's, it's something that we all must do together. And um, in my involvement with the reclaiming tradition of witchcraft, it's something like Starhawk, who's one of the kind of most prominent um, theologians and philosophers of the reclaiming tradition, she um, often says, you know, draws, draws attention to this kind of main paradigm that rules most Western philosophical and spiritual teachings, the great man. Um, and really, it doesn't matter what, whatever gender goes under man, it's usually a man, but the great man. And we all kind of attach ourselves to the idea of the great man, whether it's Jesus or Gandhi even. And it's not the fault of the great man that we're attaching to, but it's the fault, it, the, the danger is in the connection to whoever we're kind of externalizing our responsibility on. Because then all of a sudden they're the um, perf- standard to perfection and they are the um, point of saving grace. If they're gone from the world, we all of a sudden lose hope and go into despair. So when Gandhi died, a lot of that work went away because a lot of people lost their pinnacle. If we could all have seen Gandhi inside of ourselves, if we can all see Christ inside of ourselves, if we can all see Buddha, if we can all see Aradia, if we can all see the goddess inside of ourselves, we would know that we are our only authority, but that together we share in the same authority. And I think these movements of paradigms, these paradigm shifts have to occur and are occurring because for too long they've informed how we relate to each other in the world. And so, like, if you, like, just today, uh, one of my friends, um, she was saying to me, there's this, like, there's this Christian missionary who went to a South American tribe somewhere in the thick jungle of, you know, the Amazon, so to speak, and, and um, he, uh, he wrote a book, I think, called The Happiest People on Earth. And it was all about how he went there to convert them. And then he didn't because they were completely happy. 
and there is a reason they are happy, it's because they're not encumbered by dichotomies of divorcing flesh and spirit. Everything to them was a sacred act because, and if, well, they, they lived in a world that is sacred, or they live in a world that is sacred, and then why should we perform acts that desacralize that? And um, so if we, if we are living in a world that we understand as sacred and as the flesh and embodiment of the divine, how would it then translate to damage that? So again, it's like, how do we do the work? And I guess that's what I'm doing with writing. And my next book that I'm working on actually with one of my, he's a Wildwood priest as well and um, identifies with reclaiming tradition. He lives in England and um, we're doing a book together at the moment that is trying to take all the mysticism, philosophy and beautiful poetry of witchcraft and make it accessible to anyone and everyone. And we'll be drawing from Hinduism. I'll be drawing from Hinduism. We'll be drawing from a lot of teachings that are close to us that mm-hmm. aren't necessarily just witchcraft. But we're going to try to write a book that impacts people's thought processes so that people can start to go, oh, you know, oh, I connect with that. And then how do I really connect with that? Well, I engage actively with the world. And I, and I, bec- I do this and I do that. And it can just be that, you know, for some people it will just be that they compost and recycle and pick up every piece of litter they see or pick up some litter they see or an, an adopt some, um, uh, uh, an animal that is at the pound or is going to be destroyed or... They help, you know, people across the street or they, um, they work at a soup kitchen. Like there is like a lot of little stuff, but then there are the people who are just born to do the kind of more like frontline stuff. And that's like going and, you know, kind of doing peacemaking in Palestine or Syria, um, or Doctors Without Borders, people who want to do that work and um, or going into the remote Aboriginal communities in Australia and trying to um, bridge the, the divide of life expectancy of 30 years between, you know, the Aboriginal people and, and anyone else in Australia. Do you, do you see it more like individual pagans finding uh, organizations or, or um, activities that help fulfill these desire of ours to to improve the world um, as the best approach or or just the most convenient approach compared to, for instance, a pagan organization whose mission is to enlist, train, and deploy activists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is, there, is there a place for such an organization? You know, for, and, and what makes me ask that is I see a lot of work that the local churches are doing um, and it, it, the church is a cent is a community center, um, and the best ones, in my opinion, are those that have a strong element of social justice tied in with them. Or um, not not too many of them are environmentally justice oriented, and maybe that's, for instance, our high priestess talks often about that. That says that perhaps is the role of of the pagan religions mm-hmm. to um, to take the take the the voice of the animal and the plant and and be their defenders and. Mm-hmm. Um, Christians like taking care of babies and, and, and other people, you know, for instance, um, and I'm not, I'm not to say that that's to, to our exclusion. We should not do that. Absolutely. We should reach out to other people. Um, that is the heart of compassion, but, um, our focus being more on the environment, for instance, would be something that would resonate with a lot of people. So anyway, just coming back to the, the question is, you know, is there a place for a, a pagan, organization like that well i think a lot of those um like the church organizations that you were speaking of are related to denominations at times and it's interesting that you just said like not that a lot of pagan 
would kind of go, oh, organization, which I think is both naive and a bit immature sometimes because, you know, what organization is actually a principle of nature. <laughs> but um, but there, it's interesting. Like, I don't want to... I'm not a proselytizer, but there is already there are already traditions that are like completely train, <laughs> deploy activists, and that is like for me the reclaiming tradition is all about that. Like I was just at California Witch Camp, which is there's about twenty witch camps reclaiming witch camps in the world. Um, there are two in Australia now, and I've taught at both and helped to organize one. But the California Witch Camp goes over seven nights in the Mendocino woodlands, redwoods everywhere, and we do magic and we talk together and we do affinity groups which is draws from the political um, thread that inf- informs and inspires the reclaiming tradition and we talk about how we can change the world and we do all this magic and not just ritualistic type of magic but we sit and we do all of these things we talk to the spirits of plants and animals and we do it in groups and we get inspired and invigorate we we um i help to priestess uh, in the reclaiming tradition, the word priestess is used more than anything else. So regardless of gender, but it's not strange to say I'm a priest either. But so we all just say I priestessed that or I did that. So I helped to priestess um, the bower, which is a sex positive place where people can go and just either lie around or do whatever or have engage in sexual activity or sensual activity if they want to kind of make a difference between those two things. And that itself changed me so much. And I'm bringing that out into the world now because there's a lot of reconciliation and healing that needs to be done in the sex psyche of humans. So for me, nature is nature. Again, I don't draw a distinction between human nature and what we think of as environmental nature. So for me, it's all sacred. And for me, it's all concentric rings and all peopled the great galaxy or the great cosmos. And um, so, yeah, that for me is my avenue. Like definitely where... (laughs) when you go through reclaiming kind of core classes and you enter reclaiming communities, like most of those people will draw a great deal of sustenance and spiritual inspiration from their communities and then take it out into their work. Like it's a very activist tradition. Mm. Um, And I guess there are like um, communities, uh, organizations in paganism that I know of that do do those things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Like you, you talked about, is it more convenient to join existing organizations? I don't think it's convenient or inconvenient. I think that like I, 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 not so much this year, but I've done a little bit of interfaith work and I was blessed and fortunate to be one of the um, Australian speakers at the Parliament of the World Religions in when it was held in 2009 in Melbourne, Australia, which is a meeting of the, this amazing kind of conglomeration of religious and spiritual people. And, um, and I just think that that kind of work is good too. If we could have more dialogue between pagans and Christians and Buddhists and Jainists and Hindus and atheists and agnostics and whoever, and do that work together, I'm really not into sectarianism. So I'm just, I'm pagan because that's the word I use to qualify my experience. It's not that I'm trying to put myself in a box or even a community. Um, I'm drawn to people who are pagan, obviously, because they have like experiences to me and we share a language and a ritual context so I can be myself. But I think we need to do more kind of dissolving barrier work, which is an activism in itself. So interfaith work and interreligious dialogue and interreligious activism is actually a really great tool to help to kind of like do a lot of work at the same time without even realizing we're doing it. So imagine if a bunch of people of different religions and faith traditions got together to like clean up a park, for instance. Not only would we be cleaning up a park, but we would also be healing rifts between religious communities, which actually 
then goes out to Ripple because they would take that back to their religious community, their church and their temple and their synagogue and their coven. And that kind of healing compassion for people in difference would filter out and filter out and keep going. Mm-hmm. Not surprisingly, some of the most sectarian people um, are pagans. Um, as, as, and those most unwilling to have interfaith dialogue are pagans. Um, and a lot of that comes from the, the experiences many of them have coming out of, like as I did, a fundamental Christian religion and growing up gay and realizing that that wasn't a place for me. Um, it, it caused me to develop some resentments that, you know, put, created some walls, which I've since, you know, worked through. And it's, it's funny that I'm partnered with a, a minister now of a, of a non-pagan religion, um, but one that embraces and respects earth-based philosophies and religions. So there's, um, there's not a great incompatibility there. But I, I think the challenge really is within our own community, and that's always where you have to start anyway. You know, start start here in our own community. And I'm hoping that people who listen to this podcast, both this episode and others that we've done, um, get a sense of, of that and the importance of that, of reaching outside of ourselves and outside of our community and extending our arm and, and helping however we can and just being of service to the community. And I think in the end, that's going to reflect well on us. It, it will not only, I think, increase our self-esteem as a community, mm-hmm. you know, um, it, it, because it will teach us that we do have relevance and, and we can make a difference, but I think it will also influence the opinions of others, mm-hmm. hopefully. Not everyone, of course, but yeah. um, you have to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. So what is, what is the, um, what's the pagan scene like in, in Australia or Brisbane, where you're from? What's going on there? What's hot? What's happening? Um, You're like me. It's me. I'm right here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't. Uh, sometimes I know how to answer this question. I just answered this question um, in another podcast, but I'm now all of a sudden confused. Um, what is different about it? Okay. Okay. Where I live in Brisbane, it's um. Actually, I have to say that I'm really proud of our pagan community because we all talk to each other. Like, I think one of the big differences that I've noticed between American pagans and Australian pagans is that in Australia, we don't have such an emphasis on what tradition are you from? Whereas not, this is totally, and I hate generalizing, but in, in America, I see more of a trend of what tradition are you from? And then there's more sectarianism and like, it's ridiculous. And it's like, well, I like to do whatever. Like, this is my religious home, but this is what the, the traditions that I weave into my practice or my spirituality, but I just want to talk to you because I like you mm-hmm. and I would like to have a great pagan community inside other communities that touch on that. So, but you know, it's interesting. I have noticed that creeping up in my city, which is a little annoying and frustrating because like the reclaiming tradition um, and through my own involvement in it too, is beginning to get a lot of kind of, um, is coming up in my area um, because uh, we just held a witch camp in the in in the southeast Queensland area, and it kind of the ripples of that have started to affect um, different things. So I've been helping to hold public ceremonies in the reclaiming tradition, so to speak, but I also hold public ceremonies in the wildwood tradition, um, and I teach in both. <laughs> so it's like okay, whatever. And then I'm friends with Wiccans and Gardnerians who are Wiccan and Satruas and. We don't, have, we don't have a lot of effort. Like, the, the, the one main difference that I wish we didn't have this difference is that in Australia, there are little to no, no African diasporic tradition. 
which is really like, I find it beautiful and deep and very embracing in many ways. And I would wish, I wish that was around us. Is it just because you don't have a large uh, African-American or not African-American, obviously, but a community of people descended from Africans? Yes, that is exactly why. And, and, um, yeah, that is, that is why. But at the same time, like they're like, I don't know. I don't know how it is with the Native American or the Indian uh, groups and the and the pagan groups here. I don't know. But in Australia, there's a huge. There's, it's almost like we want to avoid um, going anywhere near. Like a lot of us uh, have Aboriginal friends, of course, and like have an interest in Aboriginal spirituality and and pay respects to the spirits of place. But we all, most pagans I know in Australia have this kind of like intellectual, like, oh, I don't want to touch that because that could be seen as cultural misappropriation. I don't want to take the last thing they have. I don't want to shit all over that, you know? And so it's kind of like, well, actually, I think we'd benefit if more Aboriginal, um, traditional um, people of, of traditional spirituality in Australia met with the other earth-based people and had discussion, mm-hmm. which I've never seen happen. Like, well, rarely. Rarely it happens, actually. But it doesn't happen that often. And I think there are a few people, like um, there's one woman, Shada Montford, who does a lot of that work. Um, but it doesn't happen a great deal, and there's almost a, like a, a, a subconscious desire to avoid it at all. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I'm not aware of any um, major movements in the U.S. toward that same end. Although I have met a number of people who are white, who are brought into native uh, tribes yeah. and um, treated, you know, made an equal mm-hmm. and uh, taught and instructed and then given permission to go and teach yeah. others. So it does happen. Um, and I know I've benefited a lot from interacting with those people who who are able to do that and share that information. Mm-hmm. So I agree, it's it's very helpful.
just do some plugs for you right now um let's let's plug some of your websites or mm-hmm. um any of your workshops coming up um that folks might be interested in okay <laughs> well um i'm a bit naive or ignorant of the exact details of these things but if you were to go to www.gedepalmer.com which is spelled g-e-d-e-p-a-r-m for mary a.com um, then you would find in appearances a list of these workshops in the US. But I am visiting after, like, I'm doing, I'm doing a book signing at Namaste Bookshop in Manhattan on Monday night. I don't know what date that is. And, you know, I'm doing a mysterious craft workshop in Brooklyn on Saturday the 14th. Of July, and then I'm going to New Jersey, and I'm actually doing um, two workshops: one on ecstatic embodied tradition, and one on queer spirituality with R- Robin Renee, who is an amazing kirtan teacher and yogi, and she travels a lot t- just singing. Um, so that's exciting for me. They are on. They are next week, <laughs> um, and then I'm going to be doing. Um, at the the Temple of Witchcraft, which is um, associated with Christopher Penzac, um, at their office location in Salem, New Hampshire, I'll be doing um, a book signing and ecstatic witchcraft ceremony on July 21st, the Saturday evening, and then on Sunday the 22nd, I'll be doing an all-day workshop called The Spirited Life, Walking the Talk of the Witch, which is exactly what that seems to imply. And then I'm doing a whole bunch of things in Chicago between the, um, the, 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 the 24th and the 27th um, of July, which is all organized by the um, Brotherhood of the Phoenix, which is a men who love men pagan organization. But it's um, open. Well, I'm doing like one private thing for them, but the rest is open to people of all genders and non-genders and sexualities. And um, then I'm doing kind of the last workshops I'm doing are at Eye of Horus in Minneapolis on the 28th, I think, or the 29th of July um, on deities and spirit flight. What's the workshop you're doing for Brotherhood of the Phoenix? I'm intrigued. This is called Eat My Pagan Ass, so I've got to ask. Oh, um, like for the, the, the private one? Yeah. Oh, just like 
queer mysteries. Oh, okay. They just, like, I just, they kind of, like, you bring your angle at this, which is, for me, like, I don't, like, you know how a lot of people, especially in shamanic paradigms, will say, well, the queer men or the queer women, they are the ones who are the shamans, blah, blah, blah. I, again, don't think that we're just the people who are better at it. I just think that, historically, because we've any group that has been marginalised is on the fringes already, and so they take after the archetype of the shaman or the witch because... They were the ones who, at some point, were also on the edges. And not just marginalised, sometimes, even in, to this day, traditional Indigenous societies, there will, like, the medicine person is feared. Like, they're respected but feared, again, because they do the dealings with the spirits, and the spirits are raw forces of nature that you don't want to mess with. So people are trained in how to approach them. In, in not correct ways, just in effective ways. A shaman is an effective person, um, which is why I teach all that kind of skill set, because I believe it is skill set, and I believe the, the best way to approach it is um, to cultivate a, con- a sense of confidence in it so that we can be masterful about how we relate to the spirits. Because the spirits are things like storm and cloud and rain and river. Like, they're pretty... They're gods, spirits gods. They're potent and... Um, yeah, so basically I kind of will be talking about things like that, but also how our queer kind of like post kind of postmodern queer identities affect witchcraft and how we interact with the spirits. And what about the sensuality workshop that you led for reclaiming um, during witch camp? What was that? That wasn't a workshop. That was just me being pre- helping to priestess the bower constantly. So I um at, I helped in the opening ceremony on the first day because it was a seven day camp. So we um we set up the space. We affirmed sacred space. We um you know honored the elements. But then we started. Actually, it was really beautiful. It was a collaborative effort. But I, I helped to invoke Aphrodite and Eros, and then I op- opened it to because we didn't want it to be this weird binary gender essentialist thing of a god and a goddess. Like that's cool. That's a part of it. But then I threw it open to everyone. I'm like, let's let's be respectful and honor each each of the origins, but also the unfolding continuum of every spirit we invoke, whether it's a god or an ancestor. And so there was this beautiful poetic layering. Everyone in the bow started layering, layering, layering all these potencies of sensuality and sex and love and beauty and then what we did was we um raised all this power we shook the roof with a with a melody that was written for the the words all acts of love and pleasure are my rituals and we kept chanting 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 and it like really raised the roof and then we all came down and we did an ally circle where usually it's people are holding hands and um a, a person steps into the center and they could say anything like i have been sexually abused and so anyone, and it's very intimate, and it is that deep, and it gets deeper, people who identify at all with what you said will step in, and then you make, then you make eye contact with them. And so, like, to talk about it is one thing, to experience it is a very different thing. I'm always very much crying when I go through that experience, because even if I am in the outer circle, which is just witnessing this happening, and I don't relate necessarily, I'm still connected to what is happening, and it's this unleashing of, like, stuff. So... We did this ally circle that not like not everything was related to sex, sensuality, beauty, or love, but on some level it was. And so people though would go lie on the bed because it was couch. It was beautiful. It was like a freaking Arabic. Um, I don't know what do they call that. Like like a place where you would imagine harems, uh, seraglio, uh, something yeah, so. you know, like a paradisical tent. Um, anyway, so someone would go lie on the bed, the main bed, and they would say, 
one thing was like, I think I said, I love foreplay. And then everyone who loved foreplay would come and jump on me and hug me. And then everyone else who didn't like foreplay, although I thought that would get everyone in the bed, but a few people were still sitting down, um, would just kind of radiate love and support those who loved foreplay. And someone got up and went, oh, I love gay sex. And then everyone who loved gay sex jumped on. It was really beautiful. Like, it was just so... Some of it was fun and lighthearted. Some of it was terribly, terribly, like, heart-wrenching and everything in the, in the middle and around that. Hmm. That sounds really cool. Yeah, it really was. So it was, it was a mixed sexuality, mixed gender? That's absolutely. Completely mixed gender, all sorts of gender and non-gender and other gender and all sorts of sexuality. That sounds like a wonderful um, thing that I think a lot of groups could, could benefit from, from trying. Um, maybe you'll write about that in one of your upcoming books. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> Do you have any books on, on the, um, oh, you said, you said already that you, that you're writing this thing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Brilliant. Well, uh, was there anything else you wanted to say? Like any imparting words of wisdom to the listeners of eat my bacon ass? Um, <laughs> um, I'm, I always, I don't know. That question doesn't stump me. It's just an interesting question. I think the thing I want to leave people with if they're listening to this and they've gone to the end of this is that I really urge and encourage people who, who actively engage with spirituality. And I just did the quote unquote finger thing. Um, not to me in the air, in in the air, (laughs) um, is to, um, do, do that work to heal that rift between what we consider to be our everyday life and our spiritual life. If, if we want to truly be conscious, active, embodied in this sacred world, then we need to stop conceptualizing the sacred and we need to live in it. And by doing that, we reconcile a whole bunch of dichotomies and we are walking the talk of the witch or the mystic or the shaman or the sorcerer and we are actually engaging willfully and will- willingly with the sacred and in so doing... We enrich our lives, and hopefully we enrich the lives of others, and we have, we have joy. Awesome. Well, thanks for being on the show today. It was um, a wonderful surprise and an honor to have you here. And um, I invite all of you to learn more about G'day and his work at www.gedeparm, as in Michael, A. Com. Um, it's a really great website. And um, for those guys and girls out there who like really attractive men, um, He's someone you should <laughs> you should look at. Um, um, but more than that, of course, um, he's got a lot of really great stuff to say. And I, for one, am looking forward to reading some of your books and getting to know your work um, better in that way. So in the meantime, I'm uh, going to uh, say goodbye to everyone. Um, until next time, uh, this is Eat My Vegan Ass. Don't forget, if you have any questions, actually, yeah, where can people email you if they have any questions for you directly? Okay, if they want to email me, it's um, spirited. Do I have to spell that? No. Okay, so it's spirited underscore services at hotmail.com. And if you have any questions for me, it's eatmypaganass at gmail.com. I am Luckylicious, and uh, I will talk to you all later. Hookers, I hope you're having a wonderful summer. I certainly am, and now I'm going to get back to it. Love you all. Peace. Peace.